Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Thank you for that rousing welcome, which belies the small but perfectly formed nature of our audience today. And welcome to Pantasocracy, which is our parlour of chatty delights. And while this show is sort of about equality, we will just take it as given that I am the Queen of Ireland, so behave or off with your heads. <laughs> now, in the Pantasocracy parlour today, we have four fabulous folk for you to meet. Uh, first off, please welcome Mary Duffy. <laughs> Mary is a woman of art and imagination. She's a thalidomide survivor, and she's had a multitude of jobs, but her passion is her painting. And she creates these really beautiful, life-affirming watercolours of the coastal landscapes where she lives. So um, please welcome Mary again. Let's have another one. And next to Mary um, is a man that I know well because he had the very good sense to marry a good friend of mine. Uh, it's Steel Wall. Theo is a singer and songwriter and nowadays a partner and a father, but he's a man who, as Neil Young puts it, uh, knows the needle and the damage done and what it's like to break the cycle of drug addiction and prison. So please welcome Theo. And yes, Theo will be performing a couple of songs for us later. And across the way from Theo, we have a newly minted doctor, so I can speak to her, you know, very fluently as two doctors. It's Dr. Cindy Joyce. And as if being a newly minted doctor wasn't enough, she's also just been appointed by the president to the Council of State. Cindy is a groundbreaker. Her PhD in sociology from the University of Limerick made headline news because she's a proud traveler woman, or as she would prefer to be called, a minkare. I'm going to have to ask you about the pronunciation of that properly later. And it was the first for her community, so please welcome Dr. Cindy Joyce. <laughs> Making up our perfectly diverse quartet is a young man of enormous talent and voice, and he's pretty enormous too, actually, which I always like in a man, being a rather large woman myself. And we'll be getting to hear that voice later. Please welcome Caleb Kunle. He's Afro-Irish by heritage, from Lagos to Leash, and he's now making music here in Dublin and in London. So, welcome, Caleb. But first, as is my wanton way, I get to share a few words in the panty monologues. A couple of years ago, I was at a meeting in Johannesburg in South Africa when a young man from Uganda said something that has remained with me profoundly ever since. Now, as is often the case with such things, what he said was actually very simple. It was a simple, obvious truth. And yet, I have thought of it many, many times since, and it has made me examine and re-examine in a profound way how I see others how others see me, and even how I see myself. There were about 30 people at the meeting, and apart from myself and one or two others, they were all Africans. Most of them were living in South Africa, but only about half were actually from South Africa. The others had moved, or in some cases fled, to South Africa from other African countries. And again, apart from myself and one or two others, they were all black Africans. And at one point, this young man from Uganda was speaking. He was telling us his story, or at least part of his story. And despite the fact that his story was sad and terrifying, uh, he spoke eloquently and calmly. He was a young gay man, and Uganda, a country which has at various times been convulsed by a murderous hysteria over homosexuality, can be a dangerous and terrifying place for a young gay man. 
and he had been forced to flee for his life when his name and photograph, along with almost a hundred others, was published in a newspaper beneath a headline calling for them to be murdered, which is how he came to be in South Africa. But it was something else that he said, almost in passing really, that has remained with me. He said, he never felt black until he came to South Africa. It's a really simple statement and one that immediately elicited nods of agreement and murmurs of recognition from many others in the room. Gay people, we're often asked, when did you first know you were gay? And we often respond, only half-jokingly, when did you first know you were straight? And that usually stumps us. Um, and of course it does. Why would you have even thought about it? I might as well ask a young man from Uganda, when did he first know he was black? And oddly, conversely, we're also often asked, why do you have to make everything about being gay? And usually, to be blunt, the honest answer is, we don't. You make everything about us being gay. Though occasionally, the honest answer is also, because we have to. See, I suspect that categorizing, labeling, boxing, sorting is part of the human condition. We do it so our brains won't explode. You know, thousands of years ago, we roamed the savannah with our small tribe and knew each one by grunt. You know, there's Uncle Fast Runner with a temper. There's Sister Big Sharp Teeth, Big Left Boob. <laughs> How are you, Cousin Wonky Eye, who likes cave decorating and fellas? <laughs> of course, today, we know we're not the only tribe. In fact, there are 7.7 billion of us on the planet. And if you have ever been to Supermax on Air Square in Galway on a Saturday night, you've seen about half of them. <laughs> and every day, we see more of them. You know, on the bus, on the street, TV, newspapers, the internet. You know, way too many to think of as unique individuals. And so, in an effort to try and not short-circuit our brains from overload, we try to simplify that task by categorizing, labeling, <laughs> boxing, and reducing to single characteristics. Irish, culture, Latino, Asian, black, liberal, conservative, female, <laughs> lesbian, disabled, posh, traveler, autistic, angry, junkie, vegan, mattress mick. But the problem is that apart from mattress mick, most of us don't get to choose our label. They're chosen for us, they're put upon us. You know, a defining characteristic is slapped on us, chosen by an outside observer who chose it from a myriad potential labels based only on what single characteristic was thrown into relief against the background from their vantage point. But our background changes all the time. Sometimes, like a flickering Hollywood green screen, it changes in a split second many times a day. You know, at home, you're a sister. Uh, with your mates, you're a laugh. In the classroom, you're dyslexic. On the register, you're a wheelchair user. To the council, you're a traveler. <laughs> On the bus, you're a queer. In Temple Bar, you're a faggot, you're a retard, a weirdo, a knacker, a black bastard. And every one of those feels restrictive, prescriptive, reductive. Because maybe you are those things. Maybe you're proud of being those things. But you're so many other things too. In Uganda, you're gay. In South Africa, you're black. But at home, if you even think about it at all, you're gay and black and 24 and handsome and smart, the eldest of three, a Whitney Houston fan, but also a heavy metal fan and a football player with a sweet tooth. And thank God, our goddess, for that. Let's see. Hi. <laughs> Cindy, I am going to come to you first. You know, words are really important. 
and we don't often get to choose our own labels, and sometimes we're labeled in ways that we didn't even know were labels until somebody shouts them at you. Do you have a memory of the first time you know, that you were aware of being labeled as something that you hadn't even considered? I suppose just as you said, you know, it's something that you don't think of when you're growing up, you know, you're just you. Mm. And I suppose for me, I'm a Minker woman. Um, yeah, sorry, just that's new to me, Minker. It's the Kant language. Yeah. It means what I would call traveller, but you prefer it. I do prefer it because the, the term traveller was, was also a term that was put on us. It wasn't mm. our word that we used to describe ourselves okay. because of the aspect of our nomadic, um, I suppose, lifestyle. Yeah. You know, so it's only one aspect of our culture and identity. Mm. And I suppose like this day and age, our travelling has been restricted. Our nomadic lifestyle has been essentially criminalised. For the young people, their identity is very confusing yes. for young people, you know, because they're not traveling but they're called a traveler mm -hmm. you know that kind of gets into young people's head and I suppose for me the word the word minker it's our own cant language and that's what we um, called ourselves and it just um, it just fulfills that identity culture so when was the first time you were aware then of being called something that you didn't choose yourself. Yeah, I suppose it was yes. when I was younger. I did a lot of travelling when I was younger. I was I was born in Wales and I travelled mm. throughout uh, London and yeah. we ended up travelling around England and then coming back to Ireland mm. and travelling around Ireland before we moved to my father's hometown in County Limerick. And I suppose when I was at school, it was kind of like the first time that I heard the word NACA. School in Ireland? or School in Ireland, because it's not a, a word that was used in England. They used the word pikey more in England. And this is in Primary school? This or? was in primary school, yeah. It was actually um, in school, it was another student that actually called me an acker. At the time, I didn't know what it was, you know. Mm. I didn't really take much notice of it, but I was thinking, like, what, what is it, you know? Yeah. And I went home and I asked my parents what it was, and they tried to explain to me, you know, it was a bad word, you know, trying to build us our confidence up. Yeah. The word knacker, it's a racial slur, mm. you know, that shouldn't be used in Irish society. And yeah. the thing is, it's used so often and so deliberately without mm. people even thinking of where the word comes from or what the word actually means or how hurtful it yeah. can be for my community. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you sort of assume that you're born with all the knowledge of other people's perceptions of you, but of course you're not. Steve, I want to come to you about your background. So you're Dublin, but you have a connection to, to Cindy because were you aware from always that you were part Minkera? Yeah, I suppose we would have been like because certain members of our family would still be kind of travelling over in England yeah. and, and I kind of grew up in my granny's house. But is your granny from that side of the family? Yeah, she yeah. would be, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my so granny and granddad travelled all around Ireland and they settled in the 60s. when In Shankill? No, they settled in uh, Fox Rock, actually. Oh. My granddad bought a plot of land in, in Fox Rock. But uh, no, we would have been aware of having Traveller blood in mm. us. But everyone outside looking in, we wouldn't be identified as travellers because we, we grew up in a council estate yeah. and we went to school and the whole lot. But it was only when you were in social situations when the NACA word was brought up or something. Was, I don't know, it was just... I was talking to my cousins about it recently because it's, it's so flippant. People say it's so flippantly now, yeah. you know? When it comes up, something happens inside me, you know, where it's like this defense mechanism comes up mm. and where I'm like, I'm not engaged anymore. I'm not fully in the yeah. conversation with you anymore because you've showed a part of yourself that I don't uh, identify with. Obviously, like, so originally the word was to do with yeah, horses, dead yeah. horses and all of that, and yeah. it was sort of a, a job. But of course, the meaning of words change and in different eras and all that. So it has taken on a totally other meaning that is abusive or offensive. 
Well, it's funny because when I grew up in Mayo, I was probably in my late 20s before I even knew that people meant, tra- you know, traveller when they said it. Because it, it wasn't part of our slang right. in the west of Ireland at the time. I think it is now, for sure. Yeah. But you're hanging out with your mates and they're tossing around this word and to you, you're hearing, that's my family. Yeah, that's what was happening, like, with settle mates and in school or whatever hanging around and they'd be tossing around that word I don't know when I reached a certain age like I don't know maybe 10 I started to identify with it. and mm. me as well like I was laughing at it as well like but if I'm laughing at that well then I'm laughing at myself in a sense as well you know and how did your mates react to that they were like on board and got it or I kind of wrote a song around it I wrote yes. a song around called the Pikey rap song yeah my thinking around that was that in the 60s or whatever, the civil rights movement in America, African-Americans took the N-word mm. and they just start using it to take the power from the white man. Yeah, like we did with queer. Exactly, yeah, yeah exactly that. And so that's what my rationale was. I'm going to take this word and I'm going to stick it in a song and then I'm going to take everyone else's perception of travellers and I'm going to put it in the song mm. as well. Where, you know, if you're a racist fecker, you'd be laughing, going, oh, just slagging another slagging traveller mm. song, and then I flip it on its head yeah. in the final verse. I wrote that song around trying to broach that subject yeah. with my friends, and some of them got it. What age were you at the time? I would have been probably about 12, 13. I was young, like. Like, I can't say it because I am one, but if you say it, then you're a racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, it's like I always say about queer, because, you know, there's some of the older members of the gay community, like, for example, I often have spoken with David Norris about this. He hates the word queer. Right. Because to him, a guy of his generation, yeah. it was the really bad word, yeah. and he only has bad associations with it. Because now, Caleb, you, there's a great upsurge of Afro-Irish um, musicians, and we've had a lot of them on here, spoken word artists too and all, and they're always complaining about the old, where are you from? No, where are you really? from that they get here now you were born in nigeria and moved here at what age about eight up until you were eight were you aware acutely of your race or it was just part of the background this the thing it's it's really interesting because i still every day kind of ask not more so who am i or where am i from but when asked where are you from from others how to best actually explain that and not still box myself up and say, oh, yeah, this is the package, respond. Yes, yeah. Because, like, for me, I think the background being that whilst I was in Nigeria, there was bits where my parents weren't away, so I lived with, like, different people. But though I was with different people, I was still very sheltered. So Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have much association outside of school with other people. So I can't really say I'm fully Nigerian because sometimes I didn't pick up languages, Mm. didn't speak the slang, didn't hang out with kids, didn't get that cultural side. So I got that more so when I came to Ireland because I made more friends, I played the sports. Mm. So if I were to say, where am I really from? I'd say, you know, I was born in Nigeria, raised in Ireland, really. And you're very connected here, and I know you're in London now, you know, pursuing your career and all, Mm. but you have a sort of a yen to come back here, to Leash. Yes, so I do come quite often. My parents and three younger brothers, they still live here. Yeah. And if I were to say where I feel most at home, where I started my creative journey, it all started here. So there's a major homage to Ireland and the countryside. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's where I have most of my peace. So, you know, later in life, after everything else is sorted, I'm definitely moving back. And so... Like, if if you take everybody else out of the equation and other people's perceptions or labeling, whatever, do you feel Irish or do you feel Nigerian or do you feel Irish-Nigerian? Like, what is your... I feel like new generation-ish. 
because mm. I feel like I've been able to take the best parts of yep. my Nigerian upbringing and I'm still appreciating it even more. But mm. yet I also very much resonate with the struggles of being Irish. I, mm. see, I see a lot of stuff in the countryside from the past and like, you know, migration and the stories that you hear from local mm. people in the pub. And then you can really empathize with that as a human and then say like, oh shit, like I'll take on your cause, I'll take on the values of that cause and then mm. put it together and I'm Afro-Irish. Now, Mary, now you're Irish through and through in a sense, uh, but you, of course, also would have an identity sort of forced upon you. And times have changed a lot. So I don't want to ask a woman's age in public. All right, I'm, I'm 58 next month. But, but so I'm 50. And when I was in school, thalidomide was, we all knew what that was. But now I think if you said to most teenagers, they probably wouldn't really know. Do you nowadays have to explain to people sometimes what the hell thalidomide is or was? And you know, the last time my husband was with me, actually, I was a bit shocked. But somebody came up to me and just said, thalidomide, is it? Are you kidding? I said, no, my name is Mary. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I've never done that before. But I think it's really rude. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. but anyway, the poor woman was mortified, I believe. But I just thought... Yeah, you, know, you get kind of fed up of it. Yeah. Or, you know, it's not a way to approach somebody. No, it's not that I. Not. <laughs> it has to be the third or fourth question, not the first or second. You know, we've made some progress in dealing with diversity and disability issues and all that stuff. But reading some of your background, I actually was struck with how Stone Age it was. And you're only the same what? age as me. You know what I mean? It's not eons. I don't know ago. what you're going to refer to now. Oh, no, I'm not referring to anything in particular. Just the Stone Age saying, of the what 60s. What was it like? As a, 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 you, like <laughs> it's difficult now. What, how difficult was it, you know, when we were kids to be, you know, to be different in school or... I think it wasn't very difficult at all, really. You don't think so? Well, I was really lucky because I had the privilege to go to my own home school, the school I would have gone yeah. to anyway. That was something that my parents had to fight for and mm. that the Department of Education and Department of Health tried to prevent. Because so at I got the time go- it was sort of an institutional model. Or, or, yes. Yeah. So I got saved from that, mm. you know, and I got to grow up as part of my community and, yep. you know, yeah. Well, it had good sides and bad sides. Uh, you know, I, I can understand my experience, but I cannot begin to understand yours, and I'd, I'd like to. Okay. I'm just trying to think. I suppose... To answer your question, it's probably not the answer you'd be expecting, but for me, it was more painful that my disability was hidden and not referred mm. to. You know, I was never beaten up in the schoolyard or called yeah. ugly names very much, but the fact that I was disabled was not referred to and yeah. was ignored, and that was painful. But because it was a large and because intrinsic I'm part so of able. you? Yeah. Mary Duffy, you're so able. Oh, right. That my needs as a disabled person get consistently ignored. So it's really hard mm. to be able to ask for what I want because I hate being refused. Mm. And I never ask for anything unless I'm absolutely certain that I'm going, somebody's going to say yes. Mm. Um, You're hard on yourself, it sounds a little. Yes, but you have to think. And I remember one day, I used to work in RTE and I was running along the corridor and my mobile phone fell off my leg, as it does. And somebody tried to help me to put it back on. I had it on an elastic band below my knee. Mm. And it was Des Cahill. And he got down on one leg 
and one need like he was going to propose to me. <laughs> and he said, now, how would you like me to help you? Well, you could have knocked me down with a feather because nobody ever, ever asked me that before. So I had to ask him, well, what makes you so different? And he said, I've had training. <laughs> <laughs> he did uh, voluntary training for the Special Olympics in 2003. So he knew not to... But my other, my, the more common experience is I'm walking along the street... I'm carrying my keys. I throw them on the ground so that I can pick the one I want and somebody whips them up and mm. puts them in my bag. I know this because a friend of mine was in the supermarket and she heard these people gossiping about me and she was so <laughs> ungrateful. She just took them back and threw them back down on the ground again, not understanding or even asking. What I'm trying to do is put the key in the car, not yeah. in the bag, you yeah. know. Well, what it so, is, is it's patronising, I guess. Well, actually, I don't really care what comes out of somebody's mouth. I really don't, because it's the feeling behind it is what matters. So people often put their foot in it, and it doesn't matter to me. It's their motivation. So these people thought they knew better than I did, and I I was upset about that. But other times people can say terrible things, and it doesn't matter because their motivation is good and their heart is in the right place. Mm. And I can really feel that, you know. But I remember once being in a group dressing room you know, you go to oh, the shop. Yes, yeah. This poor woman was trying to pull up or down the zip and nobody would help her. And there's like 20 women in the place. And I had the embarrassing situation. I had to approach her and say, would you like me to help you? <laughs> you know, and I said, if you move over to the wall here, I'm sure I'll be able to get that zip up or down or whatever you want. Yeah, well, I should, I should probably say, listeners, you do everything with your feet, of course, or not everything, but you not do it, the, yeah. the things that most people might would use their yes. hands for. I think probably we should have a song at this stage. Steele, will we come to you first? Yep. Tell us a little about the song. And uh, It's a song called Barcel Boy. Mm-hmm. Most of my songs are kind of based on past experience yeah. with some exaggeration. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't in Barcel. I was in like a youth offenders kind of institution, which would have been like modern day. Yeah, do they say Barcels anymore? I don't think no, they do, yeah. no, but I, I just, I like Brendan Behan as well. So right. I, uh, it's an homage to him. <laughs> I've been playing music professionally now for since June last year. And uh, my past story of like, you know, been in trouble, been on drugs, been in jail. Yeah. I've been kind of running from that, you know, like, so people like, you know. Well, I approached you carefully about being on here because I didn't know if you were prepared to talk about that, I wasn't. that stuff. But you were, well, you had a chat with Jacinta, your lovely missus and my great friend. and Yeah, uh, well, it's... You couldn't have come at a better time, actually, because... Ah, people say that about me all the time, telling you. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, because where, where it's at, it's... Look, and me and Jessie are kind of mirrors of each other as well, because she wrote a show where she exposes all her own... Jessie is Jacinta, just yeah, to be clear. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. not running more than one woman. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so she's talking our past experience as well. Mm. And then at the same time, you were talking to Damo. Damo Dempsey, yeah. who has championed you and yeah. mentored you. Yeah. yeah. And so I just, when the call came at the time, I was just like, you know what? I'm fucking sick of running from it now. I'm sick of having to be in social situations where people say, how do you write a song like Where I'm From? Because that's where I'm fucking from. Yeah. That's what I grew up in. It's what I experienced. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's hear the song and then we'll uh, come back and talk to it. Okay. Little Johnny was born 
to a life of crime Like his father and grandfather He was destined to do time And at the age of 16 He was living the dream Selling drugs out on a corner He was part of a team And they all had his back Cause they were all selling smack Till the police pulled up And it was time to take the rap And there was Mordor cries Cause she misses him Another Barstool boy Is going to prison His mother cries Cause she misses him Another Barstool boy Was raised in the system Now the door bangs out And in a cell he is alone Johnny weeps in the darkness Cause he longs to go home He wished he had listened To the elders in his life Cause the wisdom that they tried to give him Turns out it was right Next day in the yard Little Johnny acts hard But all the other Barstool boys They can see through his facade And there was more our cries Cause she misses him Another Barstool boy Is going to prison His more our cries Cause she misses him Another Barstool boy was raised in the system Raised in the system Raised in the system Now five years pass Little Johnny gets out But his head is all melted He doesn't know what he's about Can't tell if he's coming doesn't know if he's gone So he hops on a train And he makes his way home He walks the old corners Where nothing much has changed But all his friends are gone now Victims of the game Johnny lowers his head And he walks on, boy He knocks on his front door Looks his mother in the eye He's faced with the stark reality of one last choice Does he play the same game or does he change his whole life? And there was more our cries Cause she misses him Another postal boy is going to prison His more our cries Cause she misses him Another postal boy was raised in the system There was more our cries Tears of joy, cause she's proud today of our Barstool boy. Thanks, Theo. So, how did you first get into trouble? How did I first get into trouble? <laughs> so I grew up in a council estate and there's my family and there's probably about three or four other families that were the trouble families, you know? Other kids in the estate be like, oh, you'll end up like them if you're not careful. So my cousins before me would have been mad bastards. Yeah. And so that label was put on me mm. when I was yay high. The police were watching me. The principals were watching me. Everyone, yeah, I have my eye on you. I'm watching you. I, I never stood a chance. I, I was only thinking of this recently. I went back to my old neighbourhood 
and I got pulled over by the guard. I had no insurance. I did have insurance, but it wasn't in the fucking window. But it was, I was able to talk to him, and there was none like, you fucking die, scumbag, and this, that, there was none of that. It was like, yeah, no, I'm actually studying addiction now. I know what your file is going to say there. I know, like, it's that long, and I was a little fucker, and I've done all these heinous things, but, like, now I'm actually on the other side of that. I'm trying to help people not to do that. So I, I ended up in trouble starting out because it was inevitable and it was like okay if you think I am that thing I'm going to do that thing and I'm going to become and as is so often the case it was drugs that got you on the wrong side of the law yeah like I I was kind of one of these young lads that I never hung around with anyone my own age when I was 13 and 14 I was hanging around with like people who are 20 and 23 and 4 and you know now the other thing that ties everybody here is that we're all culties or at least adopted culties because Theo here moved to Claire with Jesse because I also know Steve Wall, who's another musician uh, from the area, and so so you have to brand yourself as Steel, Steel yeah. so you won't be confused with. He Steve took the Wall. good name. I like two syllable name, preferably a broad and a narrow vowel. <laughs> Cindy, two syllables but two narrow vowels, and actually you spell it with an S, which I immediately jumps out at me because I'm a child of that era when my sisters had Cindy with an S dolls and. Uh, not to put too fine a point in it, you do look a bit like a Cindy. (laughs) 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 Talk to us about your doctoral work, shall we say, your research with um, young people. Yeah, so it's called Minkersula, which means travellers walking. It was an ethnographic research of young Mm. Minkers' experiences of racism in an Irish city. So I picked Galway City as my case study. Any particular reason why you chose Galway? There was a particular reason, yeah. One of the reasons was because there's quite a big population of Minker in Galway. And I suppose the other reason for that was at the time as well, in 2008, Galway City was the first city in Ireland to declare itself as an intercultural city. So I wanted to kind of look at their intercultural aspects within the city and to see what relevant for my people I suppose and uh, my age group was from ages 14 to 21 so I did a methodology of focus groups and I had a big huge map of Galway City and I gave each participant coloured stickers so I gave them red stickers and green stickers and I asked them to put the green stickers on areas in the map where they felt safest within the city and the red stickers where they experienced most of the racism within the city centre. And did there turn out to be an obvious correlation between types of areas and Um, Yeah, I suppose Mm. most of the green stickers were actually around the areas where they lived. So they had some kind of autonomy over the area where they lived. And reasons for that, I suppose, is because they knew the area, but also that their family and friends and their neighbours and people that they grew up with were around that area. But when they ventured outside of their own um, area into the city, just on an everyday basis, you know, they were experiencing acts of racism. Well, see, it's funny because one of the things that jumped out at me reading about yourself is the idea of passing. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that if your difference it can be sort of hidden or you can manage to hide it, that you can feel safer or whatever. And I, I never really thought about that in terms of the traveller community before. Um, yeah, I suppose... Immediately, when you're identified as coming from the traveller community Mm. within Ireland, it is the experience of most of my people that once you're identified that you do get negative experiences. Even simple tasks like walking through a shopping centre, for example, a security guard will follow you around and you know they're following you around looking at you because simply for the fact of who you are. So I suppose for a lot of young people, what they did is they had what, what you call tactics. So something to resist the system for a moment until you get 
get over an obstacle. Yeah. One of the tactics was passing for the young people. They would change their accent, try to sound different, dress differently, even like simple things like breaking up into groups, you know, because when a group of us come together, we're more likely to get negative responses back. And that comes from real experiences. Like we, we, we've had places in Ireland, gyms, for example, leisure centres, um, for example, you know, yeah. actually had policies that there was only um, two or three travellers allowed in at a time. Mm. And it was the same with the younger participants as well. Like a couple of my younger participants uh, were talking about using the gym, for example. And they talked about going to the gym and um, they would be trying to pass as non-traveller. And when they do that, they would see their, it could be their best friend, it could be their cousin using the same facilities in the gym, but they wouldn't even look at each other or to acknowledge each other because they had that fear of being yeah. identified as traveller and not being able to use the gym because of that. Because now, Caleb, your obvious you know, label here in Ireland would be as a Nigerian, and that's not something you can pass. You know, you know you're in Leash, Dublin, and now London. Now, London is a very different, mixed, ethnically diverse place. Do you feel a, an immediate difference when you step off a tube in London as you do the Lewis here, or...? I used to have dreads until about maybe four days ago. <laughs> oh, so, really? Well, of I'm, I've seen your videos now. Yeah, you have dreads in them, yeah. So at first, they look at you and they think, oh, he's probably like London urban youth, especially because I'm dressed more active wear. There's a possibility more lenient towards the rougher side than the educated soft side mm. because of the body structure and stuff. Because you're a big man. Yeah. And so then I start talking and they're like, oh, no, but he's soft-spoken. So maybe he's from the Caribbean. And so that's what they usually throw at you. <laughs> and then you're kind of doing like this game of X and O. So nope, nope, not that. I'm from Ireland. And then they're like, wait, what? And <laughs> so it's weird. I find like it's weird because with more grounded systems like them, there's a bit more veneers that they have to like. They have to go through veils before they actually get yeah. to meet you. But then I find here, ironically, it's less like you don't. You're taken as who you are because everyone's kind of still first generation. Like the the journey Ireland's making is fast. Mm. I just hope we manage it better than other places because we have you know bad examples to look at. Now, when did you start writing music? When you're here. Essentially, I started writing music. Yes, here I was a lot more isolated back in Africa. So I would like take time out with my younger brother. Our creative venture then was like paper mache. So I thought I'll be more of a sculptor because I love to work with my hands. And when I like moved to Ireland around like 10, I joined the choir and I got into harmonizing and like really enjoyed singing because it was helping me to interact with people because it wasn't just to say like because I'm African I couldn't interact just in general as a person I was isolated like a church choir a church choir yes okay. and then also a teen choir in like school just like a school choir as well as part of music class and now you you were talking about stereotypes and yes um we're always trying to avoid them on this show sure, sure. but a lot of stereotypes have some grain of truth in them. and one of them that I was going to is Nigerian parents and education they take it very seriously not many Nigerian parents would say sure go and pick up the guitar and, and do that instead. It was a journey. It was, <laughs> it was a funny one because like, I didn't have a lot of interests as a kid. Like, I, I think the first time that my dad discovered that like, I was listening to music and really enjoyed it was where I came back from school. A friend had lent me an iPod 
and I'm just listening to the iPod and he's like, I was being really secretive. He's like, what are you doing? And he's not like uh, aggressive or anything. It's just so alien to him that I'm just sitting in my room listening to music. He was like, are you doing drugs? I was like, no, bro, it's just an iPod. But it's weird because I it took me dropping out of university for them to know how serious I was about music. And how do they feel about that? He was very upset for dual and numerous reasons. Firstly, of course, the money because I'd gone to like a private college mm. and I was doing laws in like second year. And he was a lot more upset because he was seeing that I'm going through the same issues that he would have gone through with his parents because he, my dad studied in Greece. So he was also a very different Nigerian person. Mm. And then moving to Nigeria, his dad got him to cut his like hair and become a bit more normal. And I guess that he subconsciously then imposed those values on me. Mm. And then all in a moment it all came down just like oh man you want to be a musician why didn't you say it you could have gone to art school but then again i put the wall damn like you know it's like years passed over just chosen decisions mm. so i feel yeah in general the african parent that dialogue of like you have to be a lawyer or a doctor yeah. it's not to say like we don't need them but i feel like we're shortchanging our abilities and yeah. the possibilities of interaction and integration so that's why i'm trying to represent and i feel my parents are on board now so good so tell us a little about the song you're going to do for us first epic so the first song would be it's called boogeyman the rough concept is an idea that I was mulling over about like three years ago. It goes with the story of the boogeyman itself, like, you know, a child on a bed, there's a monster under and it's tormented. But then what if you are also the monster under the bed? Well, let, let's hear the song then. Amazing. So this is Boogeyman. <laughs> Watch you, watch you. They will watch you when you sleep, and they will watch you, watch you. When you crying, dying, eating, it's a cycle, cycle. Wheels of fortune and start to ground and it's survival survival it's a game with no bosses around but us and the doctor doctor happened again i woke up to find myself under the bed does it mean i'm a monster or does it It's a garden, garden. Be as one and dance with the evening. It's a promise, promise. It's a note with no purpose and meaning. And it's colors, colors. Paint a picture of something. 
deceiving And I bought it, bought it I paid with my peace And I hardly sleep Oh, doctor, doctor It happened again I woke up to find myself under the bed The same mean I'm a monster What does it mean that I'm a monster? Ah, doctor, doctor happened again I woke up to find myself under the bed The same mean I'm a monster does it mean that I'm a monster or a friend or a friend or a friend Thank you. I'm going to go with no, you're not a monster. <laughs> now, Mary, you, painting is your oof. I mean, I know you, you were worked in radio and all sorts of things along the way, but it was always painting? Um, no. You were talking about cliches earlier, and I was the classic cliche, no arms, give her a paintbrush, you know. <laughs> I loved painting, but I, hate, I hated being put in that box because I went to art college in 1979, but they knocked it out of me fairly quickly. And I became a performance artist and stood naked in front of people reciting monologues. I'm on board. Yeah, I love painting, so I love the challenge of it. Mm. And I use something called cold wax, and I add wax to the painting. And ah, use, yes, yes. Yeah. I love painting outside as well, so having no arms, that makes it really difficult. Yes, I would... Uh, like I had to change and adapt and try and paint from a studio. And now I just do enormous paintings that are even harder, so I need a basically a full-time assistant to be lumping them around. But what is it about the act of painting that appeals to you? It was like what Caleb was saying. He loves making things. I just don't have the body for it, but I love making things. And painting allows me to be a maker of things. Mm, Like I love to cook. And I know when my meals look too pretty that I'm not painting enough. So Very Very interesting. Yeah, but I love making things. And paint is the one thing that allows me to to be the person that wants to make things. There's something about daubing marks and colour onto things, you know, cave painting on. There is something about humans. Yeah. When I was in art college, I was really not that interested in ceramics. But I remember on the first day, I was one of the people, I mean, this kind of blows my mind, but I was really good at throwing pots on a wheel. And I'd say only about three people could do it. The others couldn't. You know, they were doing slab work, you know, so... I guess I just don't have the body parts to, yeah, so I use paint. Well, well, it's funny you say that you don't have the body parts or whatever, but do you think if you had arms that anything would be different about your life? Would you still be a painter? Oh, yes. Good question. Definitely not. Not? No. You'd be a lawyer or something. Oh, yeah. How did you spot that? (laughs) Yeah, I love an argument. Um, uh, I, uh, I love an arguer. No, what I notice is that having no arms allows me to solve problems all the time. Mm. So I'm really sharp in that respect. Mm. And I think if I did have arms, I wouldn't have that sharpness. Are you saying we're all just lazy? 
Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying that having no arms gives me an opportunity to figure out solutions all the mm. time. And I realize I'm really quick at that. Well, now here's a funny question for you. Okay. And it's one that, you know, I've thought about, like, the gays are all, you know, we always say, well, if you could take a pill, would you take it? And there was a time, I think, in most gay people's lives where you would say, yes, give me that bloody pill, usually when you're 17 or whatever, <laughs> you're whatever. But now I would run from that pill. I wouldn't want to take that pill at all because it would make me an entirely different person, I think. My life experience would be very different, and I don't think necessarily I'd be a better or nicer person. I think I'm a better or nicer person because I'm queer. Would you take the pill... Well, no, there's no question, really. Of course I wouldn't. But from when I was eight months old, I was made wear artificial arms. And they didn't grow with me, you know. I still had the, the ones for the eight-month-old when I was four years old going to school. But could you do no, anything with do them? Any, no, no, I could wallop my brother with them. But <laughs> <laughs> So they were waiting for technology to catch up. And when I was five, technology caught up and they were really horrible and there were big heavy hooks that were powered by gas cylinders, and they kept running out of gas. They were faulty. I mean, my father had to pay for them, and he was really, he spent a long time trying to get the money back because it was so bad. But when they ran out of gas, I had to walk around like I'd just been crucified. So I suppose I was very aware that these things came out of the hot press and that they were not for my benefit. They were for everybody else's benefit. Mm because it was this kind of conspiracy that I did have arms. I was not handicapped. Definitely not. No, not our Mary, you know. <laughs> so it was really hard, I think, mm. that kind of denial. Mm. Steve, I want to come to you. So, yeah. like, I remember when Jessie, your lovely lady, said that you was moving down to Clare. That was a very conscious decision to fresh start, the country's going to blow a wind through us kind of thing? Or Yeah, for me, like, I love Dublin, and my heart bleeds blue. But um, I just can't function in it anymore. Mm. So for me, it was definitely conscious. You know, like I gave up smoking and drinking and drugging and criming and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and you're very embedded now in the in the local community there and the music community. Yeah, yeah, I've been blessed. Well, I don't know, if blessed. Like I, I I gave up doing bad things and started doing good things, and good things came back to me. That's exactly what happened. And so, like, meeting Luca would be another guy that moved down Luca and Bloom, yeah. lives down there. And I decided to start recording the album because I had all these songs that I was just doing nothing with, like. Mm-hmm. And um, and when I decided to do that, the whole community of, like, Ennis Diamond and Milltown, all these amazing musicians came together. This is a long list of collaborators. A long yeah. list of collaborators, like, and then, like legends in the game as well came on board and it's been so it's been amazing and you became a father there twice yeah yeah i did, <laughs> I did. after a few years living down there i always wanted like kids but i'm glad that we live where we live mm. like drugs are everywhere and crime is everywhere and it's all over the globe no matter where you are but country living it's a little bit not as in your face as it is in Dublin. Like, if you walk the streets of Dublin, you're going to see it all. Yeah. In, in five minutes, you'll see everything. Now, now, Cindy, you, I want to ask you something. Is it true that, unlike himself here, you've been engaged for 16 years? That's true. Uh, I think that deserves a round of applause for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, that is procrastinating to, like, a whole other level. Um, yeah, um... 
Yeah, so I'm engaged um, since I was 19 and um, I suppose we're still waiting to walk up the aisle. It's unusual, I suppose, within the Trevor community to be engaged for so long without getting married. Yes. And um, what did your mother say? Yeah, um, there wasn't even a discussion with my parents either, you know. Mm. It was just something that happened naturally, you know. When we first got engaged, I suppose, like, of course, my parents thought that it might be a year or two years <coughs> um, before we get married, yeah. you know. But um, it just, um, the two of us went to college and we just went through the college years and we moved from Limerick to Galway and we were working in Galway and then back down to Limerick for my PhD. And it just kind of naturally occurred that we never really discussed a date or set a time but um, <laughs> that excuse lasts for a while but it doesn't work for 16 years <laughs> but do you do you see yourself as a role model for younger women in your community Yes and no, you know, I suppose it's a hard thing because it's it's a lot of responsibility to be a yes. role model for anybody, you know. But I suppose for me, I'm willing to kind of take on some of that responsibility if it brings changes mm. within within Ireland, the social issues that, that we're having in Ireland for young traveller uh, women and, and young girls particularly, I suppose, for me to give the message across, and not only for my own community, but for all mm. children, I suppose, young people that come from the other side of the tracks, mm. you know, um, that wouldn't have as much opportunity to go to university or higher level education I suppose I just want to show that it can be done that it is difficult and I suppose that's one thing that I'm really conscious of is not giving the message out there that that it's really easy it'll be a breeze go through university and everything will be perfect and your life will be perfect I want to get one more thing with you Cindy is about the hate crime legislation because that is one of your bugbears really yeah, we're one of the few countries in the world that don't have hate crime um, legislation. And it's something, I suppose, that yeah. when a crime happens, you know, you have to look at the reason for the crime behind mm. it. And when it comes to hate crime, the bias aspect of it is not seen within the court. So someone being assaulted because of their identity or their ethnicity, for example, it's just an assault. Like if you look at only a few weeks ago in um, in Tipperary, there was a house that was allocated for a, a, a Minker family. And and before they got a chance to move into it, it was vandalised, you know. So that spreads a message to the mm. community. And that's what a hate crime is. A hate crime is spreading a message of fear to the community that you're not safe. Yeah, because I kind of skipped over it in the thing, but um, Cindy has been appointed by the President of the Council of State just very recently. So I, I, I think <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Uh, Caleb, what's your ambition and plan for the music going forward? Going forward, there's a lot of things in the air. Um, My goals and dreams are geared towards Africa at the moment. So I've been really blessed to have experienced some really nice festivals and creative experiences here, and I want to install the same in Africa. The thing that dawned on me was like realizing a lot of creatives in Africa are seen more as craftsmen rather than as artists. And I feel like that change of mind would give them more value in what they do and also give us more appreciation of what they're creating. And so I want to create a music festival as well as just rebranding the types of sounds that come from Africa because I feel I am a good representative of the Pan-African sound or idea. Well, tell you, maybe you can um, sing us out. So tell us about the song. A pleasure. So this, uh, this song is called Beautiful. How? Sweet, and I'll take that compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hear it. (laughs) 
remember I saw you in the store The first thing that I thought my water star I remember I watched you whilst you worked And yet you never missed a beat though I was there After some time you saw me indiscreetly And I feel this magic each time you looked at me I hate the fact that I cannot find the words Cause if somewhere there I'll tell you what you're worth Cause it's all because all My life has never been the same again I should have taken the chance to follow you, but oh My life has never been the same again I should have taken the shot to know you more, oh My, you're beautiful Could you tell I only think of you Just before the curtain call washes over me And could you tell I only dream of you And though I try to hide it, nothing feels as true You help me stay another day alive I know one day we'll wish final goodbyes Until we're there, there's only me and you Where we're fighting all the walls we never knew And it's all because all My life has never been the same again I should have taken the shot to know you more My life has never been the same again I should have taken the shot to know you more And oh
that is all from us here on today's episode of Pantasocracy. Um, thanks to all of our guests, Dio Wall, Mary Duffy, Dr. Cindy Joyce, and of course, Caleb Kunley. Thanks, of course, to our audience here in the studio and to those of you listening at home. Uh, please check out pantasocracy.ie for all podcasts and videos from today's show and every other show we've ever done. Um, talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.